Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Games Rig for the final time. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, also known as the Mars Bar Bandit. And having mined this shaft for all it's worth, I am Ash Versus. This final episode of Series 2 aired on the 25th of March 1993, and we've got a new number one at the top of the charts with Shaggy's O Carolina, but it's also a new number one at the box office for Forever Young. Daniel McCormick loved living on the edge. If she comes with a warranty, I'll take her. He wasn't afraid to face anything. Ellen... Will you marry me? Except the woman he loved. I I couldn't get the words past my throat. But when he thought fate had taken her away... Harry, I can't watch Helen die. I want to sleep for a year. He took the chance of a lifetime. Free as a human being. He never imagined where it would take him. It's cold. Do you think he's dead? So what you're telling me is that he was lost, misplaced for 50 years. Mom, I'm not making this up. So you fellas do this a lot? Mess with classified military experiments? No, sir. This is the first time. I don't really like know much about sort of like the the history of O Carolina. Obviously, like Shaggy would, you know, he was quite a sort of a, a staple of the the mid nineties with Mister Bombastic, which is something I'm, I'm much more familiar with. But he had like this massive resurgence in the early noughts with It Wasn't Me, and I feel like sort of like that's the Shaggy that most people now know, as opposed to this era of Shaggy here. Well, this era of Shaggy, I also think of Mister Bombastic. What I can say is this is not an original song. This was originally released in 1960 by the 
Folks Brothers and was considered a landmark single in the development of Jamaican modern music of ska, rocksteady and reggae. And whilst it was recorded in Kingston, it did make it over to the UK and was released here in 1961. Now, you fast forward 30-odd years, Shaggy releases his version. It was the lead single from his 93 debut album, Pure Pleasure, and it became an international hit. It did brilliantly in the UK. Obviously, it went to number one. It didn't do quite as well in the States, but did peak at number 59 on the Billboard Hot 100, which isn't too bad. It did receive major airplay in America on alternative rock radios, which I find a very odd genre to lump it in with. But it also gained notoriety because it was on the soundtrack of the 1993 film Sliver. Well, speaking of films, as we mentioned there, Forever Young is at the top of the box office, directed by Steve Miner and featuring Mel Gibson. Also, people slightly more reputable today, Elijah Wood and Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> this is a science fiction film, and it's a science fiction film I forget is a science fiction film. I mean, essentially, it's a man trapped in time film. His wife or love of his life is ill. He gets frozen in cryogenics. He's meant to be frozen for like two months, and it ends up being... 25 years or something. Essentially, they kind of stole this for Futurama Mm -hmm. or stole this from Captain America, depending on whether you look forwards or backwards. But essentially, a pair of kids exploring where they shouldn't be find and disturb the cryogenic cart. They wake up naked, delirious Mel Gibson, not something any of us ever want to do. And then it becomes a romantic comedy science fiction film where Mel Gibson is trying to convince people that he is actually who he claims to be and find some answers. I remember this film coming out. I remember the trailers. I remember the slightly terrifying aging makeup they use on Mel Gibson as the cryogenics go a little awry and it didn't work properly. And I also remember it getting a lot of screen time on the BBC film programme. I remember Hmm. Barry Norman talking about it. I can't remember what he said, but I remember him talking about it. (laughs) It got mixed critical reviews, but despite those, it did pretty well at the box office. It took in over $125 million worldwide. And despite where Mel Gibson may be now, it did do some good at the time as the premiere was turned into a fundraiser for two of his charities, the West Hollywood Alcohol and Drug Recovery Centre and the Santa Monica Homeless Drop-In Centre. So a little bit of good was done out of it. Do you have any thoughts or memories on it? Uh, Not really, but the director's... What really jumps out to me, Steve Miner, who was uh, the director of Friday the 13th Part 2 and also Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D and would work with Jamie Lee Curtis again on Halloween H2O. But for me, the most interesting thing about Steve Miner is that he was set to be the man to bring Godzilla over to the US and do the first ever American Godzilla movie in the early 80s. He'd acquired the rights from Toho after going out to Japan and working with them uh, and they were going to co-finance the movie together and it was going to be Godzilla King of the Monsters in 3D because he'd just done Friday the 13th part 3 in 3D so he's like well I'll take all the skills I've got from there and transport it across to Godzilla because he was a fan of the Godzilla movies and effectively what it was going to be was kind of a remake of Godzilla or as it would be known in the West Godzilla King of the Monsters with Raymond Burr as Steve Martin but rather than it be nuclear weapons that create Godzilla it was going to be an asteroid that kind of hits down onto Earth and sort of like half creates half awakens this creature that would rise 
up from the sea. Hi, I'm not a huge fan of that particular tangent. You don't have to make it nuclear weapons, but you know what? 1980s, there were plenty of other nuclear options you can go for. At the time, this was still being banded around. We were pre-Chernobyl, so it wouldn't be considered that tasteless. But you could have done nuclear power plant accident. You could have done nuclear submarine accident. There were a lot of other ways you could have done it other than this is a reaction to a horrific act that basically ended World War II, which is what the original 1954 was. While this film didn't take off, we did obviously get Godzilla 1984 when Toho themselves went, fine, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it, which is not the first time they've done that. And in fact, the next time it happened, it was after what is commonly known as not Zilla. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Zilla himself uh, would, uh, the the 1998 Roland Emmerich Godzilla film would essentially Toho be like, oh, right, okay, that's not how you do a Godzilla movie. We'll bring him back for Godzilla 2000. I mean, Steve Miner has said that them doing Return of Godzilla in, in 84 kind of halted the process a little bit. He did have a script written by uh, Fred Decker who had done Monster Squad and House and some uncredited work on Demolition Man which is a nice touch because you were just talking then about Forever Young a man being frozen in cryogenics but Decker was not a fan of Godzilla projects I feel like that the story of Godzilla in the West in sort of like the 80s and into the 90s is peppered with people trying to remake the movies who are not fans of Godzilla like Roland Emmerich said in interviews that he hates Godzilla movies which is why he didn't make one and he just made it a Jurassic Park ripoff. But Fred Decker did have some like nods in there. One of the characters, Peter Daxton, wore an eye patch, which is a reference to Dr. Sarah Zauer from the 1954 original. And uh, there was going to be a reporter, Dana Martin, which is a tribute to uh, Steve Martin, of Raymond Burr's character from King of the Monsters. Powers Booth and Demi Moore were considered for those roles. But really, the film fell apart because no studios would pick it up. Minor has said in interviews, he, he was interviewed by Steve Rifle for his book, uh, Japan's Favorite Monster, which is a brilliant, brilliant book if anyone hasn't read it. I've got a copy of it. I've had it for a while and it's just, an in, even though it's now sadly out of date. Yeah, but basically he said that, that he ran out of studios to take it to. Warner Brothers showed a bit of an interest, but they wanted him to lower the budget. But like Fred Decker has said that the reason why it didn't work is because it was Steve Miner that was attached to it to direct. He sold Steve Rifle, had it been James Cameron or Steven Spielberg, then a studio would have greenlit it in a second. But Steve Miner, you know, the guy who did Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3, didn't have that name recognition that could carry this big budget, big blockbuster movie. Well, speaking of name recognition, there is one more name attached to Forever Young that, while certainly not them, but definitely now has some name recognition because the screenplay was written by J.J. Abrams. Uh Uh-huh. Based off an original story named The Rest of Daniel. If you look at the timeline, this is early J.J. work. This is writing script and it going into the slush pile and seeing what comes out. So here we are, 92, 93. We got J.J. Abrams here and it's going to be another 10 years before he really gets to kind of step out and get that recognition with the help of Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible 2. And I'll be honest, given the somewhat lukewarm reaction to Mission Impossible, I'm amazed that Mission Impossible 2 still happened and especially given the time span between that first and second movie. I've, I've got to imagine, obviously, I don't know this for a certain, but I've got to imagine it's being driven by Tom Cruise. And the Church of Scientology. <laughs> well, perhaps, yeah. But like Tom Cruise is that sort of actor that 
he's got a passion project. It's kind of like what Fred Decker was saying about Godzilla 3D. The reason why it didn't get made is because it didn't have a James Cameron or a Steven Spielberg attached to it. But if you've got Tom Cruise banging on your office door being like, I want to make another Mission Impossible movie. Can I have this money, please? They're more than likely just going to say yes. And in fairness to Tom Cruise, I don't think a single one of those Mission Impossible movies has actually bombed at the box office regardless of critical reception. In fact, I would say that critical reception to the Mission Impossible films is better now than it was early doors. Yeah, certainly, totally. certainly. It's interesting that you mentioned J.J. Abrams as well, because when I was doing my book, I don't know if I've told you this, but I wrote a book once. Um, but when I was uh, interviewing <laughs> people for that book, a name that kept cropping up throughout like my research for that was J.J. Abrams, because he was just like everywhere, just doing these uncredited rewrites on so, so many projects. Kevin Smith tells a story about like meeting J.J. Abrams for the first time, which is just after they'd sold Clerks. And they were walking out of the Miramax studio and this, as he describes it, nerdy kid ran up to them just to have a chat with them because they were these sort of fresh new faces. But all he really wanted was just some of the free swag that they had got from uh, Miramax's uh, release for Clerks. So it's sort of like carrying out this, this, this uh, tray of like T-shirts and stuff. But Simon West, uh, who directed the Lara Croft movie, told me that when he was doing Con Air, J.J. Abrams did a rewrite of that script. And only one line of J.J. Abrams' dialogue actually makes it into the final product. But J.J. Abrams was paid more for that than Simon West was to direct the film. Woof. <laughs> According to Simon West, anyway. I don't <laughs> According to Simon West. No, no, you need to follow the Ian Hislop route, allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> That's it, you avoid the lawsuits. Allegedly. <laughs> but J.J. Abrams, there's a polarising figure, eh? That's, oh, a yeah, podcast. That's a podcast on itself. But we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that indeed. What we do have time for is the new release this week and its final fight on the Sega CD out in the US that would eventually uh, get released over here on the Mega CD. But I thought I'd bring it up here because this one's actually two-player. No comment. No, it was. It's arguably, Final Fight on the Mega CD is the best home release version of Final Fight. Yeah, completely. No arguments from me on that one. The SNES version graphically looked amazing, moved and sounded amazing. It was great, but its lack of two-player mode made it half a game. It's time for the final magazine segment for Series 2. Ash, what have we got to talk about? Well, it's time to avert your gaze, Reverend, because... It's Dominic's big purple column. One last time for Double D for a full 26 episodes, <laughs> and we're going to bask in the glory of his column inches. He welcomes us once more to this turgid sprawl that I like to call my column. As anyone who was at Games Master Live will reveal, I am not nearly as sickeningly nice as I appear on the television. This means that nice as it is to receive letters from you all, if you write any that are crap, I will humiliate you in print form. <laughs> This issue's socially challenged reader of the month comes from Manchester and is named Andrew Pike. Give him a round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. Andrew sent in his entry to issue one's White Carnation competition and also said things like, It's hip to terraform. Ask my buddy Andy Crane. And claims he has found the secret to terraforming Venus. He finishes his letter by saying that he made a mess of the other entry. Well, Andrew, I have a few, seven in fact, things to say to you. One, you can pick up a life at reception on the way out. Two, Who's Andy Crane? Three, you probably messed up the other entry because they only let you write in green crayon. Four, I've changed your name to protect you. Five, no I haven't. Six, your entry for the compo was completely hopeless. Seven, but good luck with the terraforming. A note to all readers, don't get upset if I write anything horrible about you. It's all part of growing up in the 90s, when I was your age, etc, etc. I tell you what, that last sentence rings true. It was indeed part of the 90s. <laughs> 
Just ask Jazz Rignall. Just to quickly run down Dom's top five in reverse order. Number five is PGA Tour Golf 2 on the Mega Drive. Number four is Tiny Toons on the NES, a rare entry for an 8-bit game. And a platforming game. Yeah. Number three is Shadow President on the PC. Again, showing that he clearly likes his strategy games. Number two, Legends of Valor on the PC and the Amiga. And at number one, a favourite in all our hearts, Super Mario Kart. Ah, very nice. On Super Mario Kart, he says it's a game which has completely redrawn the structure of power in the Game's Master office. It no longer matters whether you're Dominic the Presenter or Cameron the T-Boy. If you are top at this one, everybody buys you a beer. An outrageously superb game. Now this ties in with something that we were hearing from Dan last month, which is clearly this guy was involved and not just there as a pretty face and a nice haircut. And given he has said that he got a lot of flack from games journalists, it's nice to see that he showed his chops as a gamer he showed his interests as a gamer and regardless of how he feels how he performed as an exec producer he did his best he did his part he worked to be part of the team i appreciate that do you think as well that the t-boy was actually called cameron or was he just making a fun little jab at cameron McAllister? why not both (laughs) in addition to the top five there's also the cac game of the month which is home alone a note to sega 10 years ago i had a zx spectrum this would have been a great budget game on that (laughs) <laughs> we also have villains of the month runner up is tom strain you may not know who he is and neither does dominic but matthew Purton from wiltshire wrote in to say he is a dickhead so who is dom to disagree <laughs> but this month's true villain of the month is prince charles why well first he treated die really badly and we all love her second imagine that you're heir to the throne you could have had just about any woman you wanted pamela armstrong vanessa paradis or maybe that erica off baywatch and he picked Camilla Parker Bowles, allegedly. Allegedly. That's exactly. He Dominic's been taking journalism lessons from Ian Hislop, <laughs> but his last word sums it all up. Tube. <laughs> and lastly, appropriately, the closing credits. This month, it's Adam Wood, the series producer. He's healthy, eats raw vegetables, pumps iron and plays football. It's his job to boss me about, which he does impeccably. He used to be producer of The Word, but can't talk about it for credibility reasons. (laughs) Someone's still bitter they didn't get that job. I was going to say. It does make you wonder where Dominic's career would have gone if he had ended up on The Word. Would he still have ended up going the path on British TV he went? Would he have gone to Canada still? Would he still be there? Mm. What do you've done, Games Master? Well, that's the thing. If he if he'd done the word, I think it would have been the word or Games Master. If he'd got one, he wouldn't have done the other. Yeah. Because of scheduling conflicts, if nothing else. Alternatively, we could have had Terry Christian on Games Master, which I think we can both agree would have been a terrible, terrible idea. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, unfortunately, it's welcome to the last show of the series. Over the past 26 weeks or six months for viewers in Swindon, we've mined this shaft for all it's worth. But before we go, it's time to sign off with a flourish as we go over to the Games Master. Well, Ash, I hope that we've not mined this shaft for all it's worth. I know we've done 26 episodes of Series 2, but we've still got a bit of a road ahead of us. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's still more stuff to mine from this show. I don't think we're at the vinegar strokes yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll be fine. Yeah, I think we'll be just fine. I mean, Dexter Fletcher's just round the corner. There's plenty of stuff to mine from him. Yeah, this shaft still has untold bounties to reveal to us. Indeed, it has been 26 weeks or six months if you're from Swindon, but it is the final episode of Series 2. But before Dominic leaves us, and indeed leaves us for a good amount of time, it's time to sign off with a flourish and head on over to the Games Master to find out what's up first. Good evening. 
I hope you're comfortably settled into the games rig. We initiate tonight's proceedings with um, a primitive adventure on Shadow of the Beast 3. I've opted for the forest stage, and I'd like you to get through the level in one and a half minutes or less. With um, hostile beasts and cavemen to contend with, I expect more than a few fatalities. Now, this first challenge that we've got, I think, kind of sums up the majority of this episode for me, which is that it doesn't feel like the final episode of the series. Kind of like how last week's episode didn't feel like it was the penultimate episode of the series. This one here, like this challenge on Shadow of the Beast 3, you're just doing the forest age, get it done in 90 seconds, doesn't feel like it's a big, momentous end of series challenge. Bar the last challenge that we get on this show... Everything does kind of feel business as usual. And again, this comes yeah. back to what I said a couple of episodes ago. If I was rejuggling the running order of the last four or five episodes, I'd have put the Sega Magazine Challenge on 24, 25 and the final on 26. I'd have kept the Mortal Kombat Challenge on 26. I'd have maybe, yeah, kept it last. Start with the Sega Magazine Challenge, end with the Mortal Kombat Challenge, because as we said the other week... That is the big upcoming game. And for the celebrity challenge, maybe bumped Vic Reeves up, maybe Josie Lawrence. Put a celebrity in there that's a name value because no offense to the two guys we've got coming up, I had to look them up to know who they were. Uh, if they did come in like episode seven, they wouldn't have felt out of place. Just like, you know, proper early or mid-season type things. Couldn't have had Vic Reeves because of the uh, comic relief tie-in. But someone like Josie Lawrence, absolutely. Or even our mates from The Bill that turned up, they'd have been fine. They were entertaining, even if they weren't the most competent. Although that would mean we'd have to see Gallagher's gallery. <laughs> no, no. Ending the series on Gallagher's gallery, that would be a that would be a kiss of death. But... While we're on this first challenge, it's Shadow of the Beast 3. It's an Amiga game. It's developed by Reflections and published by Psygnosis. It had been out a while by the time this episode aired. It was released in 1992. And shockingly, it is indeed a direct sequel to Shadow of the Beast 2 and also Shadow of the Beast. Yeah, which got absolutely slated in the first series of this show. I mean, Martin Edmondson, who developed the game, did say that Beast 1 was a graphic showcase. Some people found Beast 2 too difficult. So with Beast 3, our aims are to keep it looking good, retain the puzzles of Beast 2 and make it easier. It's going to be much more accessible. And I would say that compared to what we saw Shadow of the Beast 2, this game does look much more accessible. I like what we see of the puzzles of that kind of mechanic and it looks kind of fun. Yeah, I was about to say the same thing. I mean, despite their best efforts, it did still get mixed reviews. Computer Gaming World called the graphics very good and music excellent, but criticised the difficulty level again, the lack of a save game feature, and slow loading times. With the review specifically stating, I've grown tired of arcade games that punish the player rather than reward them for their efforts. And you know what? That is something that I've actually felt a lot while playing some of these old Amiga games. Because they're shorter games, I often feel like they don't want me to win. Making the beast with two backs on this challenge is David Newland from Exmouth. Now, lovely. Now, David, what does a funky young dude like yourself get up to in Exmouth? Well, not much, except watch the games master. Oh, check what's this guy like, eh? Listen, is it also true, David, you've been nicking Mars bars from the oil rig supplies? 
Oh, well, only a few of my friends are there. Only a few of your friends. So Andy Rishi was right about that. Well, from Exmouth, it's a funky young dude taking on this challenge, David Newworth. Um, and he apparently just watches Games Master. That's all he ever does. Creep. Or that and steal Mars bars. Yeah, yeah, he is the original Mars bar bandit, but he's got a bit of a Robin Hood complex going on because he does say he steals for his friends. He doesn't steal for yeah. himself, Luke. Much like <laughs> you and your burgeoning Larry Flint porn empire that you had with the paper round. <laughs> Larry David, please. Larry David, Larry Flint, <laughs> Paul Raymond, if we go off where we saw them filming Games Master the other week with the review Absolutely. bar. Which means in the future, you will actually be portrayed by Steve Coogan. So you've got that to look forward to. Aha. Aha. <laughs> anyway, back to the challenge, which our divergent shows that this isn't actually the most exciting challenge. It's not, no. It's it's okay. Well, I can always tell it's going to be a good day when Tom Watson from Renegades with me. Welcome, Tom. Hello, Dominic. Now, Tom, Beast 3, give us some tips. Okay, well, it's not all hack and slash. That's the important thing for him to remember here. There's a little bit of thinking to do, some puzzles to solve. So he's got to mix the two styles. Okay, he's also got to be very, very quick because David only has one and a half minutes to get to the level and kill the end of level body. And Dom can always tell when it's going to be a good day when Tom Watson from Renegade is with him. And he's right, Tom Watson is a consistently good guy to have on the show. He's become one of the staples and one of the people that I just go, cool, it's Tom yeah. Watson from Renegade. I don't get excited to see him, I just know we're in safe hands. The puzzle aspect of this, I think, is my favourite part of this challenge because right at the start, he kind of he runs along and he picks up this piece of meat that's hanging over a flame and he pushes that along and he sets it up underneath the trap because you don't want to run underneath the trap, otherwise you get killed. He then runs all the way back, unlocks this beast from a cage and the beast then runs along and gets hit by the trap to allow him to get access to a higher platform. It's a really, really nice little challenge. It's also, in my mind, very heavily inspired by Star Wars Return of the Jedi because what happens to this beast is what happens to the Rancor. It gets crushed and, oh blimey, Mortal Kombat is not the only gory game we're getting in this show because this thing bleeds. If it bleeds... You can kill it. And they show the big replay of it as well, the close-up of the blood pouring down this creature. And then he climbs up, gets a rock to lower a platform. He's got 30 seconds left around these sort of time-wasting pole area where these sort of poles are going up and down. 15 seconds, now at the boss. And he's only got 10 seconds left to beat this boss. Thankfully, the boss only takes three seconds to kill. As I think I said last week, this boss is essentially a carnival balloon. You just stick it with a pointy end and bleh, it goes... But despite it being a game that didn't really make me excited to see the challenge, I actually enjoyed this challenge. It was fun yeah. because the kid knew what he was doing. And also, like you, that puzzle was fun. Yeah, I really like this one, actually. I, I like this more than I thought I was going to going in. I thought it was actually pretty cool. I really loved the puzzle aspect of it. The, the final boss is probably the only letdown of this point, really, which is, as you said, it's only three seconds long. So what's not necessarily the golden glittering start we'd have wanted to this show, it's a fun challenge. It's just not... It doesn't feel climactic. It doesn't feel no. like a finale. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. We've still got two challenges, review zone and a consultation zone to go. David, you had seven seconds left there at the end. A very, very commendable performance. Was there ever any, any point you felt a bit queasy? Um, yeah, just the spikes at the end. Yep, that was all. No other problems. No. 
Fine, great. Okay then, well done, David. Post-challenge, Dom asked him if it was ever a point he felt a bit queasy, and David says, yeah, with the vertical spike poles at the end. And to be fair, that was a tricky moment because they didn't seem to follow a regular pattern. They did seem very irregular, so you couldn't time your jumps like you would in a Mario-type situation. It, it did waste 10 seconds of his time, which, you know, like in the 90-second challenge is actually quite pertinent. It's a lifetime, but there were no other problems. And either way, he goes home with the Golden Games Master joystick and a pocket full of Mars bars. You can't do much better than that, Luke. Certainly not in 1992. (laughs) Bloody love a Mars bar, me. Helps you work, rest and play. (laughs) But Luke, with a heavy, heavy heart for one last time, let's head on up to the review zone on the games rig. I'm somewhat sad that our journey has reached this point. And you know how sad this is, Ash? I've been calling it the review zone this entire time. In my notes, I've been calling it the review zone. And it was only on this final episode watch I suddenly realized it's called the reviews booth. And I've been saying it wrong this whole time. You know what? Every episode, I see that it's called the reviews booth and I'm like, huh. And I write down review zone. (laughs) So in my mind, I'm right. Their graphics are wrong. (laughs) It's the consultation zone. It's the review zone. It's all about the zones. It's medieval zone, future zone, ocean zone, Aztec zone, review zone, consultation zone. You can shove your consultation chamber up your ass. Anyway, it's... (laughs) Not without the Swarfiga. Tonight, we bandy about obscure terms like the mystic spell of castigation as we look at role-playing games. First up, the console conversion of Dungeon Master. 20 characters and 14 levels conspire to kick in Lord Chaos. Unlike real role-playing games, you don't need your friends to come around and help you play. You can simply sit there and play with yourself, which is an especially favourite pastime of mine. It's been so successful because it's so playable and so user-friendly, but to be honest, it's beginning to show its age. Since there isn't any other game like it on the Super NES, RPG fans will probably jump at it. It's role-playing games this week. We've got Doug Cushty making his return along with Martin Pond from Zone and Gus Swan from Meme Machines. And first up is the console conversion of Beating Lord Chaos. Dungeon Master is on the Super Nintendo. Now, look, I'm fairly certain we've talked about this game before. We have, yeah. I, I had to trawl through my notes to find this, but it was in the consultation zone of Season 2, Episode 12, uh, about the Amiga version anyway, of actually how to defeat Lord Chaos. So this game has has been around the houses a bit as is in fact reflected by some of the comments that it receives in this review it was originally published for the st in 87 and then almost identical amiga and pc ports followed in 88 and 1992 respectively but here we are now in 92 to 93 and it's the super nintendo's turn and despite the scores that it gets here it's actually a pretty good conversion and is certainly unique at this point in time on the Super Nintendo. There isn't anything really to quite compare with it. And that's kind of what Gus says in his comments about this, where like, there are no games like this on the SNES at the moment. So RPG fans will really, really like it. But I also kind of agree with what Martin says, which is that it is still playable. It still looks great but it is starting to show its age a little bit. And I think that's probably, you know, if, the, if this is a game that came out in the late 80s, and now here we are in early 1993, it is going to start to look a little bit dated. However, arguably the most on-brand of our reviewers is Kushti, who says that unlike real role-playing games, you don't need your friends to come around and help you. You can sit there and play with yourself, which is especially a favourite pastime of his. Wank joke Luke's, we're going out on a high. I also mentioned as well when this game came up in episode 12 that it sort of became the template for some D&D games, i.e. Eye of the Beholder. And I've recently played Eye of the Beholder because they did sort of the free bundle for it on good old games. It was like Eye Beholder and a couple of other D&D based games and I've played it quite recently and I'll be honest with you, I was absolutely cack at it. 
I could not get used to it whatsoever. I think, and this is something I've experienced going back to older games of genres that I enjoy, is it becomes very difficult to kind of turn your mind back. And some things that you're so used to doing in a modern iteration or style of game, you now suddenly can't do. Mm -hmm. A great example, not with a role-playing game, but with uh, first-person shooter games, is I've recently gone back and played some older first-person shooters on consoles. Just recently, I completed Time Splitters 3 on the GameCube. And man alive, that's really tough to go back to a really shonky version of basically mouse look. Yeah. When you're used to your smooth analog sticks of the PS4, the Xbox One, or even the 360 and the PS3. Whereas the GameCube, yeah, not so great. But this game is important, I don't necessarily agree with the score it gets here. I think it deserves a little bit more than that when compared to others in its field. And its field on the Super Nintendo is rather barren at this point. Absolutely, yeah. So 68% Dungeon Master gets on the Super Nintendo. Next up, in Final Fantasy II, monsters rule the world. Find the crystals that control them and they won't any longer. After playing for a while, I was actually quite into it. The reason being, it's got a marvellous script and quite an ingenious plot. It's quite large but it's not very hard, and any above-average games player is going to walk through it pretty quickly. The Legend of Zelda wipes the floor with this game. Kaplunk wipes the floor with this game. Which is a higher score than Final Fantasy II gets. This, to me, is actually more controversial than the Sonic 2 score in the magazine. Right? Because this, while listed as Final Fantasy 2, is actually Final Fantasy 4, but Final Fantasy 2 and 3 never got released in the West, so when Final Fantasy 4 did, they turned it into Final Fantasy 2 until the re-releases came out when Final Fantasy 2 once again became Final Fantasy 4. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> I've brought you your orange sherbet. (laughs) But Final Fantasy IV is really the encapsulation of what became the classic Final Fantasy experience. It was a massive sprawling game. Even though the original English translation did come under criticism at a later date, the game was incredibly highly regarded as being a quintessential turn-based role-playing game with a massive sprawling story. And the story, in fact, was so big it had to be reduced. It was cut to a quarter of its original length due to storage limitations. So this game could have been so much bigger. However, one criticism that is made in this review does ring true, and that is the game is easy. And that's because Square made it easy, where Mm -hmm. they were worried that Western audiences would struggle with the difficulty level of the original game. So they made it easy. And then they actually re-released that version in Japan as Final Fantasy IV Easy. <laughs> Irregardless of its version, it was very highly acclaimed. Famitsu's panel of four reviewers gave it 9, 9, 10 and 8, adding up to an overall score of 36 out of 40, one of the highest scores awarded to any game in its year of release in 1991, and it was second only to The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Which actually gets brought up in this review. It's Martin that says the Legend of Zelda wipes the floor with it, but then kind of goes a step too far by saying, so does Kaplunk. I'm sorry, Kaplunk, you can't summon entities and deities. But also other Western magazines clearly disagree with them. EGM's panel of four gave it eight, nine, seven and eight, adding up to 32 out of 40. And Ed Semrad, who gave it a 9, stated that Square had just redefined what the ultimate RPG should be like, noting the spectacular Mode 7 effects, outstanding graphics, and a quest unequaled in a video game, concluding that it makes use of all the Super NES has to offer and is the best made to date. And GamePro, which is kind of a sister competitor to EGM, also agreed they gave it a perfect 
five out of five in its March 1992 issue, stating that it truly redefines the standards for fantasy adventure games. I'm agreeing with them. I'm not agreeing with the Games Master reviewers here because, easy or not, this game deserves more respect than it gets here. 61% for Final Fantasy 2. And while I would agree that it is second to Zelda, I think Zelda is a better game purely because it is actually slightly more accessible. 61% and saying that Kaplunk is better, that's, that's throwing an unnecessary level of shade. Dan spoke to us the other week and said he was concerned about giving a bad game a good review or a good game a bad review. Well, in this case, all three of these guys gave this good game a bad review. But I think this also shows why JRPGs, for lack of a better term, did struggle to get a foothold in the West until Final Fantasy VII, really. And I think Final Fantasy VII did make the West kind of reevaluate some of the RPGs that had come over here. But, you know, games like Final Fantasy III, or, you know, Final Fantasy VI, and Secret of Mana, and all of these games that were beloved by the hardcores that were willing to give it a shot, but they never got the wide mass appeal. You know, like Mother is, is a good example like it, of a game that was loved by the people that played it but when it actually came to the wide mass market people weren't really willing to give these sorts of games a chance i mean i think final fantasy 7 won over people one with its cinematic scope because here with mm-hmm. cd-rom and full motion video final fantasy had the chance to be truly cinematic but also final fantasy 7 had something else going in its favor and that was it had the marketing power of Sony behind it. Yeah, Sony were trumpeting the fact that they had that, you know, that it was supposed to be an N64 game. Uh, I, I think do we, we will get to talk about Final Fantasy VII in our timeline, I would imagine. We will, and the story behind it and the impact it had on the relations between Square and Nintendo were wide-reaching and didn't even begin to get resolved until the advent of the GameCube. Mm-hmm. And even then, it was tentative. It was still not a sure thing. But I look forward to talking about it, and hopefully, as and when it turns up, we get some reviewers in that respect its authority. In cyberspace, an evil multinational runs a city in the future. There's a million different characters. You are one of them. Millions of people, millions of places, million of puzzles. In fact, there's only one thing I can think of that's larger. Cyberspace is a bit daunting and can probably only be recommended to PC users who have had experience of RPGs in the past. And lastly, it's cyberspace on the PC. There are millions of characters, and you're one of them. Um, Doug makes another knob joke, saying that he could think of only one other thing that's larger than this game, with a little cheeky raise of his eyebrows, which unfortunately you can't hear in the audio version of that clip. So I do recommend people go and check out his little hmm that he gives at the end. Uh, And Gus says that it's daunting and only really recommended for heavy RPG users. Still an excellent 91% for cyberspace on the PC. And upsettingly, I couldn't find anything about this. Which I'm kind of unsurprised by with a name like Cyberspace. It was a bit like there was a, a game that was trying to like be a Kickstarter project that called itself Chrome, which is very difficult to Google because it's the name of Google's web browser. So I couldn't find anything online. I checked abandoned websites. I checked good old games. I had a route around. This game at the end of this review says it's out next week. And I think possibly in time for our season two wrap up, I'm going to have to do a deep dive through every single goddamn PC magazine from that time, (laughs) because it frustrates me that a game that looks to be so huge just disappeared. And if it did just disappear, it wouldn't be the first time because we've already had our 3D gaming spectacular from a few weeks back, which never saw the light of day. Mm -hmm. My theory is it did get released and it's under another title, but I've no idea what that title is. And so until I can find out what that title is, 
we can say no more on this other than this game looks pretty interesting for its time and certainly quite an exciting use of the technology. To lessen your heartache at our imminent departure, we have exclusive previews of what will undoubtedly be the two hottest Amiga games of the summer. First up, a long time ago when I was still in shorts, there was a classic shoot-em-up on the C64 called Euridium. Andrew Braybrook, the game's Wunder programmer, comes up with the sequel over 10 years later. This one involves the return of these giant dreadnought spaceships and they have to be attacked by a lone manta craft. The manta, instead of landing on the ship, transforms into a robot which smashes through the surface and you continue the battle inside the spaceship. Project X, I've been playing that a lot. I really do enjoy playing that game, but it only scrolls very slowly. This time, it's the whole screen that's moving very, very quickly. And I think that, that's very important. We really are going for high speed this time. Well, speaking of exciting uses of technology, we've got some new Amiga games coming out very soon. And this is our final feature. Actually, technically, it's our penultimate feature, I suppose. But the first one is Uridium 2. And we get to hear from Andrew Braybrook as he takes us through the game that's 10 years after its original that Dominic Diamond remembers on the C64. And I tell you what, if you want to find a guy that looks like a Commodore 64 developer, no offence to him at all, but Braybrook, I look at him and I'm like, this is a guy that developed for the Commodore 64. He is of the bedroom shed developer territory he's created a couple of cracking games because Uridium still very highly regarded Uridium 2 also has its fan base they're great games this is a game to be excited about if you're an Amiga player who graduated up from the Commodore and is now with a 500 a 600 or even maybe a 1200 oh yeah look at the little rich kids getting the Amiga 1200 <laughs> He tells us all there is to know about the sequel. This one involves the return of the giant dreadnoughts, which are being attacked by a lone craft, you, the hero, which can transform into a robot and smash its way into the surface that allows you to continue the battle inside the spaceship. And he talks about how fast the game's going to be. And you know what? It looks fast. Before Sensible Soccer exploded onto the scene, Kickoff 2 was everybody's favourite footballing fantasy. The game's designer, Dino Dini, is about to restake his claim to soccer supremacy with goal. Things that it brings into the game that weren't in Kickoff 2 are... For example, acceleration and deceleration of players um, and screen flipping. And you can switch between a close-up view of the pitch or a far-out view of the pitch. The goalkeepers are very intelligent, uh, but a greater realism is in, has been introduced in that goalkeepers have their own attributes. Uh, every team, as goalkeeper, will behave in a slightly different way. In uh, kickoff 2 and kickoff, the control system was difficult to master as far as dribbling is concerned. Um, in goal, when you are running slowly, it is far easier to control the ball when you're running quickly. It makes it easier for people who are starting out on the game for the first time. And for our second preview, we've got a guy who we've talked about before and we may talk about again. It's Dino Dini, freshly divorced from the kickoff franchise, and he's coming back and going for the title held by Sensible Soccer. He's bringing gold. Yes, the game that was quite recently voted the worst game that you could get for Christmas by Games Master, at least the NES version. Maybe the Amiga version of Gold will be better for Jaleco. I don't think it will. <laughs> but it did come out on other platforms. It also appeared on the Mega Drive as Dino Dini Soccer and came out on the SNES. However, the SNES version was only an interpretation of the game and Dino actually disputed having his name associated with it as he was not responsible for anything from that version and had no creative control over it. It did, however, feature a 
very different control method with the ball sticking to your foot, making running with the ball easier. And that's interesting because when he's talking about the various features he's bringing to this game, he's acknowledging that things were missing from kickoff too, including acceleration and deceleration of the players, as well as making the control system easier as when you ran with the ball, the slower you move, the easier it is to control. So not quite sticky feet, but certainly making some concessions to having a game where it's almost impossible to successfully dribble. Finally, Electronic Arts, the king of the sports sims, are about to bring out Michael Jordan in flight. To show why this will be the most realistic basketball game ever, here's a peek into the making of the game. This game provides so many camera angles, like a sports broadcast, that in order to make these guys look 3D on the court, we have to shoot them from all the angles they might be seen from. And because of the 3D angles, you may look see the action that the cameraman sees because he can zoom in uh, from any angle, which is what this game allows you to do. It's a complete three-dimensional representation of the game of basketball. Once Michael and the other characters have been filmed in every single position, it was time to put the film into the game. Once we get the real, you know, once we get the real video footage in there that we shot today, it's going to look, you know, as close as we can to real TV. You know? Those principles you taught us about defensive fundamentals, you know, we can put that stuff in. And yeah, in your face. And lastly, we've not had one of these for a while, but this is just an electronic press kit. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, my note that I've got here is that Mike Suarez takes us through this, clearly filmed by some other production company. This really feels either like we've got to use this, otherwise we're not going to be on their mailing list in the future, or we're running about two minutes short. My theory on this is that uh, it's kind of like what you said there, basically. You want to keep in good with the people that are sending you across this, the PR teams, the developers, whatever it is. But we do get to see some of these again in Games Master's Future, where they have a look at American press kits that they have been sent over. The difference is later Games Master, when it becomes new Games Master, will essentially Mystery Science Theater 3000 all over it and will take the piss out of it as they're watching it. This is just played completely straight this is just presented without comment michael jordan in flight which looking at it and i've watched a a little quick play of it as well on youtube is the ncaa college basketball game that we had played during the thomas patterson challenge but with the digitized graphics of model combat that's exactly pretty much it and the license on this game is michael jordan because other than him it has no nba licensed players or teams michael jordan is the money on this Much like the game that you just mentioned, the court is surrounded by a void, but it is a technically impressive game to the point where Computer Gaming World praised the incredible 3D-based graphic engine and said it was so far ahead of everything else. However, they did criticise it as being too easy because the product is based on Michael Jordan. Jordan is too good overall and concluded that it is the most visually realistic sports software on the market. Now they need to apply the technology to a game. (laughs) Woof. They're right. It looks more like a tech demo. The lack of an audience, the lack of teams, the lack of anything that licenses it to anything other than Michael Jordan. I like a good basketball game. This one left me cold. And it's interesting as well because I saw this and I suddenly thought, ah, maybe this is the reason why Michael Jordan isn't in NBA Jam. But the reason Michael Jordan wasn't in NBA Jam was actually due to his deal with Nike and he wasn't part of the NBA Players Association group. Although he did later appear in NBA Jam in a version made pretty much specifically for him where he saw other people playing NBA Jam and went, 
hey, why aren't I in this? So Midway then put him in the game and sent it to him. There were yes. so many custom versions of NBA Jam out there that were modified for specific players or people. I live in hope that the various source codes still live out there somewhere. And I think one of the developers has hinted that it may still be around. Oh, NBA Jam's a game that's going to come up in our timeline as well, which I'm very, very excited about. I'm hoping we're able to record in the same room at that point, because I think there's <laughs> going to be some NBA Jam tournaments, Luke. <laughs> but that's enough features for this week and this series, I suppose. So it's time for our final celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? For the evening's second challenge, I've pumped an ice hockey encounter on NHLPA hockey. Contestants have one two-minute period in which to get their pucks in the back of each other's nets. Vigorous body checking is highly recommended, but don't do it too close to the referee as you might be sent to the sin bin. I also think this might be one of those times where they were filming later in the day after Patrick Moore had polished off the uh, the payment that he received for playing the Games Master because he is very, very, not stuttering, but making sure he says NHLPA very, very succinctly so he doesn't have to keep doing it over and over again rather than trying to say it quick and you might balls it up. But yeah, this is NHLAP. Sorry, even I did it. NHLPA Ice Hockey 93 is the game that we're playing. One two-minute period. And while it is considered to be the second of the EA NHL games, it's not actually licensed by the NHL. But it did receive licensing permission from the aforementioned NHLPA. And because of this, all teams are referred to only by their city and not allowed to use the team name itself or the logos, or the emblems, or basically anything that could actually identify it as an NHL product. But Games Master does recommend vigorous body checking, but be careful not to get sent to the sin bin. Arguably one of my favourite bits of any ice hockey game is seeing how much damage you can get away with doing. We have an extra special celebrity challenge this week. For the first time ever, the two great sporting disciplines of hockey and ice hockey meet in a head-to-head clash. So please welcome Great Britain ice hockey star Kevin Conway, I'm Britain's greatest ever hockey player, Sean Curley. Welcome to the show, Kevin. All right. Welcome, Sean. Hi. Now, I'll turn to you first of all, Kevin. This is your game. Surely you've got to be the favourite tonight. Well, it's a hockey game, so I'm, I'm, I'm expected to win it. You are, know, you, uh, are you good at all the rough stuff? Uh, I get my fair... <laughs> I get my fair, fair share of penalty minutes. Okay. Well, Sean, um, you're, you're quite a clean player by comparison. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we play a real man's game because we've got <laughs> no, none of all this. this. I mean, <laughs> look at all that stuff, really. I think, um, I think you're very brave. I mean, you're, you're playing away from home in a yeah. matter of speaking tonight, Sean. You've had a couple of goes at the game. How do you fancy your chances? I've got a couple of ploys. Beat him up. Put it in the net. But I'd like this setup because it's ice hockey versus hockey for this celebrity challenge. We've got Great Britain's ice hockey sensation Kevin Conway taking on hockey star Sean Curley. Now, Kevin Conway is a British ice hockey legend. He's also Canadian. Yes, he is. To the point where he was born in Ontario in 1963 and realistically stayed in the North American and Canadian area until 1985 when he signed up for the British Hockey League. He signed with the Air Bruins. He moved around a bit. He associated with Durham, he went to the Telford Tigers in Division 1, and then he had a long association with Basingstoke when he joined the Beavers in the 91-92 to seasons, so this would be the point in time when we meet him. And you can see that because he's wearing their outfits. 
Yeah, he has actually turned up ready to play whatever the hell they ask him to play, <laughs> which is especially funny when you see his opponent. He retired from professional ice hockey in 2004 and spent his final season with Solihull. During that time, he was the leading goal assistant point scorer for the team, however, so he certainly kind of went out on a high or certainly as much of a high as you can associate. However, he was persuaded to come out of retirement by the Solway Sharks and played for them in 2006 to 2007 in the Scottish National League and the Northern League and continued to play for the Sharks in the 2007 to 2008 season as well. So clearly retirement didn't work out for him. And Mm. that's fine. He seems like a nice guy. And I actually do appreciate he turned up in uniform. Yeah, he comes out in full gimmick. Because his opponent, Sean Robin Curley, MBE is a field hockey player and turns up in comfortable slacks. <laughs> and while he does have some Olympic gold medal winning to his name, being part of the winning squad in the 88 Summer Olympics in Seoul, he's definitely throwing some shade at ice hockey. He's, he's yeah. not a fan. They kind of play up the typical Britishness when talking about sports that have originated in America and then been come over to the UK, which is usually they wear pads, the big girls' blouses. Now, American football versus rugby, we've had this discussion. We don't really get American football. We've been told by various people why we were wrong. Thanks for that. That was great. (laughs) But we still don't get it. With ice hockey, I understand the padding because you know what? You're not running around on grass. You are hurtling around on ice with sharp blades on your feet. I have only been ice skating a couple of times, but this and this is a vivid memory of when, we, when I went to an ice skating party as a kid and the person who was there kind of like instructing us before we went out said, if you fall down, lift your hands off the ground. Instantly, you need to lift your hands off the ground because if someone is skating past you, they will chop your hand off. And I that, that vision, that image has stuck with me for the past 25 odd years that I'm terrified of ice skating. I genuinely am. I was watching an episode of Buffy the vampire slayer yesterday where she's ice skating on her own and i was like i hope she doesn't lose a hand she she needs that for slaying i'm curious when you first saw jaws did you get nervous about sitting on the toilet afterwards as well no it's only ice skating oh, okay <laughs> fair enough because i did like i saw jaws <laughs> and i'm like randling clerks so i'm like there are sharks in the water there's water in the toilet therefore there are sharks in the toilet it's logic <laughs> it makes sense but as we said conway arrives in full gear curly arrives in comfortable slacks dom says that this is kevin's game so he has to be the favourite tonight and he says it's an ice hockey game so he's expected to win it. Dom asks if he's okay with the rough stuff and Kevin misses the sexual overtones by a country mile and says he gets his fair share of penalty minutes. Yeah, just gives an answer about ice hockey. How boring. Dom says Sean is quite a clean player by comparison and Sean throws the aforementioned shade by saying he plays a real man's game and mocks the ice hockey get up. Although despite that accusation of being a clean player, he says his tactic is beat him up, put it in the net. Well, it looks like we're all set for a bruising battle on the ice here. If you'd like to see who wins the battle of the hockey disciplines, join us after the break. Frosties. They're When you hit a home run, there's nothing like the great taste of Frosties as part of your nutritious breakfast. We were on our way back after watching the match when I spotted this was Eddie's stop. He was up and away, but I'm sad to say there was one thing he forgot. And I thank my lucky star. 
chocolate and Mars always helps you on your way. And at the end of the day, I just got carried away. <laughs> you know, Mars today helps you play. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A big spaceship came to visit one day. They beamed up the game. And soon right away. So I put the Coco Puffs on the roof of our shack. When they saw that yellow box, Welcome back. We're getting ready for a ferocious head-to-head here on NHLPA Hockey. We have Great Britain ice hockey star Kevin Conway against Great Britain hockey star Sean Curley. With me at ringside is Neil West from Mega. Welcome, Neil. Hi, Dominic. This is a brilliant game, Neil, isn't it? It's a fantastic game, but the two teams aren't. They really are quite appalling. They do for the NHL what Guns N' Roses do for Opera. But it's still possible <laughs> to score goals. All they've got to do is duck down the side, pass it back in, they should be okay. And if that fails, just have a good ruck. That's what I always say. Okay, then. So what it is, we are going to play one period. Whoever scores the most goals wins the game. Are you ready, guys? Yeah. Best of luck to both ears, and off you go. Bad boy Neil West, the evil twin version of Neil West, is in the booth again with his leather jacket, um, pointing out that they're playing as the worst teams possible. That do for the NHL what Guns N' Roses do for opera, which is a beautiful comparison and so appropriate for this period in time. <laughs> which makes me think that Neil West is a ice hockey fan. Which, given his general association with Sega at this point in time, would make sense because it's one of the sport games that makes up the core of the Mega Drive is the ice hockey games, your Maddens, Mm -hmm. and soon to be FIFA. But I think for me, and possibly for you, my first introduction to ice hockey was video games. Yeah, in particular, NHL 94, which I I think is still considered to be the best NHL game of the 16-bit era. I mentioned Clerks like a few minutes ago, and we move on to more rats... 
Yeah. And it's one of the first things you see in the movie is one of the characters playing ice hockey on NHL. Finishing my game? No, 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 no. You promised me breakfast. Breakfast? Breakfast, breakfast. Look at the score, for God's sake. I'm only in the middle of the second, and I'm winning 12 to 2. Breakfast, come and go, Renee. Now, Hartford, the whale, hey, they only beat Vancouver once, maybe twice in a lifetime. You hit the bathroom already? Don't worry, I didn't let your mother see me. Who's worried? Are you kidding me? I've never met a person who lives in as much fear of his mother as you do. I do not. So that's why I have to sneak in here after everyone's asleep at night and sneak out undetected in the morning? You want I should tell my mother what we do in here at night? What, that you play video games and I fall asleep unfulfilled? Funny in fact as well, Kevin Smith wrote in the script that he's playing NHL 94, but Sega would not license them NHL 94 and made them put in NHL 95 on the Sega Saturn, which is not what Kevin Smith was used to playing. I actually had no idea that was the Sega Saturn version. Yeah, it's on the uh, the director's commentary for it. He says that like we were all playing NHL 94, so that was the game that I was going to put in there, but Sega wanted us to show off the Saturn and NHL 95, which none of us were particularly good at and none of us really wanted to show off because that's not the game that we're used to playing. Yeah, Sega were just looking at Morvat and going, yeah, that's going to be the game that puts the Saturn into orbit. I mean, in fairness, I think Universal were looking at that movie being like, this is going to be the big movie for Kevin Smith. We've given him the budget. This is going to... Ca- it's going to be the new Porkies. You know what? I've got a lot of time for Morvat. There's a lot of things in there that make me laugh, but the worst thing that happened to it was the studio. Oh yeah, 100%. I've just suddenly realised, Ash, before we get onto this, I mean, I'm trying to do as much as I can to not talk about this challenge, but we are on our final episode of a series and neither of us are having a beer because I've got to drive later. I mean, it's actually four o'clock on a Friday. Damn, it is almost beer o'clock. Well, you know what? Assuming you're not listening to this on your commute into work and you're in a socially responsible place when you hear this, open a beer on our behalf. We'll wait. (laughs) Bit quicker. Seriously, he's got to drive and I've got to go and do other stuff. (laughs) Sort it. Get the beer. Join us later. They're playing as Ottawa in the red and playing down and Sean is San Jose and playing up. Now, Kevin obviously chose Ottawa because, despite being a British ice hockey legend, he's from there. And I'm wondering if Sean chose San Jose because white is a very different colour to red. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my figuring of it as well. We then get into the challenge itself, which... It's not great. No, it's not. It is just, there's a couple of chances on goal at at both ends, but there's never really any thrilling action. And Neil is is throwing out suggestions, like running it around the goal to kind of like get past the keeper, but none of them really do that. There's some decent passing. As I said, there's a couple of shots, but it ends 1-0. And it's not a particularly exciting goal that's scored either. The puck just goes around the pitch for a bit. It kind of changes possession here and there. Two minutes later, the challenge is over. I'd say the most exciting thing is right towards the beginning where we actually get a power play situation, which, as is explained, is when there is a numbers advantage because someone has been sent to the sin bin. And it, man, that was a serious body check. Mm. I think the issue in part isn't that these guys are bad at this game per se. It's that they're playing this game like they're playing hockey, not like they're playing a hockey video game. The suggestion that Neil throws out about running the puck around, 
what you're doing there is you are manipulating AI limitations on the goalkeeper because the goalkeeper is trying to follow the path of the puck. And if you draw him away from the goal line, you can move quicker than he can so you can nip it in behind him. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've done on ice hockey games going back to the Mega Drive. It's a tactic that can still sometimes work on modern iterations of NHL. Slightly less because EA have realised that people do this shit all the time. So I've made it so you can't. It's a shame this challenge isn't more exciting because actually I like the pre-challenge banter. I like the kind of England versus America, field hockey versus ice hockey. Maybe a year later, two years later, we'd have had them on NHL 94 and then we'd be looking at a much more exciting game. But as it is, this is just a challenge and nothing much of note happens. No, unfortunately not. All right, I'm going to go to you first of all, Sean. I tell you, you were getting some beautifully intricate passing going there, but you couldn't find the back of the net. No, no, that's bizarre problem wasn't it in the olympics recently it uh, so uh, it goes with the form was he a little bit rough for you in the end yeah skillful i think skillful, skillful more than rough. well a testament to your skill there kevin but i guess we had to show them I guess it's a man's sport. I mean, it wasn't a bad challenge. It was just there. Yeah, it was just there. And it's kind of what we're talking about with the first challenge. It wasn't a bad challenge. Like, end of series should be like the end of term. Like, the end of school term is the biggest party of the school year, basically. Because that's when you get to bring in board games. That's when you get to take Ghost Castle into school and play that with your mates and hope you don't lose the skull. Who's brave enough to play Ghost Castle? The victims journey room by room. They take their chances. Along the way, anything can happen. And usually does. To win, you must reach the coffin and lay the ghost. Will anybody survive Ghost Castle from NB Games? But this doesn't feel like an end-of-term show. I'm wondering, is that something we'd have felt at the time? Or is that us projecting our expectations of season finales backwards because we are now coached, be it drama or be it entertainment, that the season finale will have something big. In the case of drama, someone will die. There'll be a big reveal. It'll end on a cliffhanger. Whereas Games Master was a show that went out 6.30 on a Thursday for 26 weeks. And you know what? And really, you look back at the season finale of Series 1. It was Duck Hunt. It was Emlyn Hughes International Soccer. And it was Decap Attack. Like, those, again, like aren't really big hitters to to run a season out on. And in retrospect, as we look back at season one, what made season one episode 10 for us was we got to talk about an iconic appearance from season one, Trigger Happy Paul Gannon, and how that affected him and what his experience was with it and moving on. Just got Trigger Happy. Yeah, you did a bit. Emlyn Hughes, that was a shit show of a challenge, but it was funny because it was Emlyn Hughes. And Decap Attack was just nice to see because it's an interesting game to talk about because it is a reskin of a Japanese game. And it was a boss speedrun as well. Oh, that was great. Yeah, that was an amazing speedrun. But the challenges themselves, for the most part, were not the interesting part. It was the circumstantial stuff around it. And now I look back where we are as we about to go into the final consultation zone of season two. First challenge was... Okay, it was a nice use of knowing how to work the puzzles and also knowing where your health boosts are. So you kind of you are playing the level to a time limit rather than a level of completion. The review zone was okay, but for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. But it made it interesting to talk about. Same with the previews. This unfortunately doesn't have any interesting celebrities, doesn't have a particularly spectacular game, and so just is. Yeah, that's it. It just is. Hello, Games Master. What can I do for you? On New Zealand's story on the Mega Drive, I keep dying very quickly. Is there any way to get more continues? You're in luck, for indeed there is. On the title page, rotate the joypad clockwise. 
you should now be the proud owner of five grand new continues, allowing you to progress much further into the game. Thank you very much. Well, our first kid keeps dying a lot on the New Zealand story on the Mega Drive. So Games Master tells him you rotate the pad clockwise on the menu and you get five continues. Now, I think we've talked about it before. I love New Zealand story. It's an absolute banger of a game. It's the story of a Kiwi called Tiki who must save his girlfriend Fifi, spelled P-H-E-E-P-H-E-E. Apologies if I've said that wrong. As well as saving other Kiwi chick friends who've been kidnapped by a large blue leopard seal and apparently was influenced by a couple of game developers who went on a holiday to New Zealand. What drugs did they take on that trip? Because I've seen Lord of the Rings, I've seen The Hobbit, New Zealand doesn't look anything like this. <laughs> but it's kind of nice to see the New Zealand story back on Games Master because we saw it reviewed on the Master System way, way back in episode two of this series. It's also nice to see the Mega Drive version because I'll be honest, when I think of the New Zealand story, I mainly think of the NES version. Yeah, or the Master System version. It was an 8-bit game that got a 16-bit upscale. Not even an upscale, just a port. Hello, Games Master. In Goblins 2, I found the door near the fountain, but I can't open it. What should I do? The answer lies in the wizard's house. On the floor, in front of the fire, is an animal rug. Get Winkle to step on his tail while Pingus bravely reaches in and snatches the box of matches. Use these to light the fire under the teapot and then fill it up with your bottle of water so that the evaporating water peels back the picture on the wall, revealing a hidden key. Blow out the flames under the teapot and use this key to wind up the cuckoo clock, which will reveal yet another key. It is this key that will open the door near the fountain. Thanks. But up next, Luke, we saw this game last week and we're going to see it again this week, but a bit further on, it's Goblins 2. I missed opportunity here to have the same kid from last week asking this question because from my gathering of this, obviously I've not played the game, but the way that this sounds, this comes directly after the last hint that we had because last week's hint was how to get inside the wizard's house and this one is how do i do this bit and he said it's in the wizard's house it's certainly in the same area of the game but we don't have the kid from last week what we have is a guy in a suit and this question is the reason why there are only two entries in the consultation zone yeah you've just heard a very very long clip but this sort of explanation is the sort of thing I love because this is a logic that only makes sense in video games, particularly in point and click video games. You have an animal skin rug, okay? There's something in the animal skin rug's mouth that you need. It's a box of matches. How do I open it? Well, you stand on the tail. This is the sort of stuff that you would lose days on trying to figure out without a walkthrough. This wasn't about timing jumps right. This wasn't about finding a warp whistle or a secret exit or a feather or whatever that crazy stuff I've seen you do on Castlevania is. This is about not even logic, more illogic. And it is like that point and click wonderfulness, which is just, you've got some items. Why not just trying rubbing every item that you've got against everything that's clickable and you'll eventually work out what you need to do? I mean, it's got me this far in life. <laughs> but regardless, Chrome Dome seems in fine fettle this evening. So before he hangs up his helmet, let's head on back to him for the final challenge, not only of the episode, but of the series. This is indeed a melancholy moment. The last challenge for this series of Games Master. But instead of wallowing in sadness, I decided to go out with a bang 
on the gory and unfeasibly violent arcade beat-em-up Mortal Kombat. You know the rules by now. The first person to achieve two victories wins the contest. Fight dirty. And uh, see you anon. Now this feels like end of term. This feels like a series finale game. Because this isn't just Mortal Kombat. This is Mortal Kombat in the arcade. And when they filmed this, this was fucking new. This was so brand new that, you, and you can see by filming is they're just literally filming the screen. They have just got a camera on the screen at an angle to not interfere with the people playing it. This is new stuff. And I'll be honest, this was pretty thrilling this feels really special to feature model combat this early in our timeline now you mentioned the fact that they weren't showing direct captures of the screen they were filming at an angle i've got a theory about this when you cut to wide shots the game is being displayed properly on the monitors around the set the monitors behind dominic in the commentator's position and clearly the monitors the crowd can see are taking a direct feed from the arcade However, this is the arcade version of Mortal Kombat. This is the arcade version of Mortal Kombat with the blood turned on. Oh, yeah. I think the decision to go with the -the over-the-shoulder camera was a deliberate editorial decision to try and minimise the grief they were going to get over the blood. Yeah, very possible, yeah. Because I can't see a reason why that video feed that would be displayed on the monitors would not be usable. It was there. It's clearly visible in the episode that it's a full frame shot. But the only thing I can think of is that that point, the blood that flies from the punches and the kicks would be much more obvious. Yeah, I think you might be right on that because I'd imagine by the time we get to series three, because like we're not going to go too much into like the overall history of, of Mortal Kombat because it's the... The first episode of Series 3 is a Mortal Kombat special, and it is all three challenges are on Mortal Kombat. And I'm pretty sure like the gore is shown in that one when they play the Mega Drive version. But at this point here, probably they haven't got it cleared with Channel 4. By that point, maybe it's a bit more of a, a done thing. It's more of a standard thing. So yeah, maybe it is just it was a way for them to kind of minimize the, the blood outage from the game. Because this game, whilst new at this point, and as we'll discuss at the front end of Season 3... This is a game that is as well known for its controversy as its gameplay. Oh yeah. This along with Night Trap is the reason why game ratings exist. And I'd say it didn't become a competitor for Street Fighter 2. It became an alternative because the gameplay was different. This was a different style of combat. This was a different style of game. This was something new. And I wish I could remember what I thought seeing this back in 1993. Because even now, I'm watching this and, spoilers, the gameplay is not great. Mm -hmm. They've mastered a couple of moves each. There are no fatalities, but these characters, they look big, they look large, the blood flies. I kind of remembered, or at least remembered what it felt like to see something like this and go, I've never seen anything like this before. Because up until that point, digitized fighting games, we had Pit Fighter. And as we've established, that's Bobbins. (laughs) For this ferocious bite of pugilism, we have two of the country's leading ninjutsu experts. Please welcome Andy Thomas and Jim MacGyver. Now, Andy, first of all, tell us a bit about your martial arts experience. I've been studying and teaching ninjutsu for eight years. I trained with the Grandmaster in Japan and Brian McCarthy, chief European instructor. 
Okay, is this where you picked up your footwear that you were in? Oh, here? yes, this brilliant footwear. This is Kabe. This is for stealthy infiltration techniques, which was the hallmark of the ninjutsu practitioner. All right, now, Jim, are you a bit of a stealthy character yourself? Uh, I've been training for 18 years, and I'm involved in karate, kickboxing, and jujitsu, and I've trained under many different masters. Okay, so I'm not going to bother picking a fight with either of you guys today. All I'll do is ask you to take your places by the machine and we'll get ready to fight. And playing this game, our final challenge for Series 2, it's two of the country's leading ninjutsu experts in Andy Thomas and Jin MacGyver. MacGyver, 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 MacGyver. Aunt Selma has one hour to live. Hey, down in front. And this is actually quite interesting because they talk about sort of like their training and Andy talks about how like he's even gone to Japan and trained with masters over there. But Jim's got the experience. Jim has got 10 years of experience on Andy and he's also trained with masters from around the world. And it's kind of that we were kind of talked about it with the arm wrestlers last week. These are people who have sort of dedicated their lives to this craft and take it very, very seriously. They take it very, very seriously, almost as seriously as they take their dick measuring contests, because <laughs> there's a lot of that in this. Of uh, the first guy introduces himself and he's like, "I've trained under a master eight years," and then when we go on to the other guy, he's like, "Well, I've done eighteen years. I've trained under multiple masters, and Daddy drives a Porsche." It it's actually really juvenile. It's so interesting because this is the reaction I had to the arm wrestlers last week, but I've got less of a problem with these lads doing it. With the arm wrestlers, I kind of felt that they would go off and have a drink, maybe have some casual arm wrestling, you know, just guys hanging around with their shirts off, casual arm wrestling, it's all fine, it's all good. <laughs> they were having fun and they were kind of ribbing each other a bit you know it was all it was bant it was all jokes <laughs> i felt these two guys were actually slightly pissed off with each other it's a animosity between the two yeah certainly jim who really kind of came across as felt like this upstart who'd only been training for eight years was beneath him a bit so yeah i didn't have a problem with the arm wrestlers because they felt like they were all friends even if they were competitors in fact they wouldn't be competitors because they were in different weight They're classes different weight classes and I'll be honest, the feeling I got, particularly from seeing the tribute video that we talked about, is that actually the arm wrestling community is actually quite tight knit. It's a bit of a club. And it's, I think where I'm coming from from this, because I do agree with you and I do agree that these are sort of, I, I have less of a problem with these guys doing it than I did with the arm wrestlers. But I think this is sort of like a, a sort of a general overview. You know how I said that it was, it's that scene from Predator where they sort of like grasp fists and flex their muscles and stuff. And it is all about my muscles are bigger than yours, X, Y, and Z, this and the other. That's how I kind of view all combat sports type things is I think they've all got this, this same aura of that they're better than everyone. I, that's that's always the impression that I've got from these sorts of people. Given what you do for a day job, I find that deeply amusing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, wrestlers are the absolute wow. worst for it, though. I'm the I'm the enemy. I review things without taking bumps. But one thing I do want to say about Andy, he's wearing those cool sneaky ninja shoes. He certainly is. I always thought it was very fortuitous with the Ninja Turtles that they mutated in such a specific way that their feet were naturally like those shoes. <laughs> what a freak of evolution that that was. That's mutagen for you. That is indeed mutagen for you. NMS mainman Tim Boone is with me tonight. Welcome, Tim. Peace on you, Dominic. All right. Now, listen, Tim, this game is not for the squeamish, is it? No, not at all. This game is very bad. I mean, the guys in this game are so tough, they could give you some trouble. <laughs> now, listen, um, Andy is playing with Raiden in this. I rather fancy Raiden because he can do those little electricity bursts. No chance, no chance. Sub-Zero's your man. He's ice cool and he's got a brilliant special move. All right, that's who Jim's playing. It's a best of three bout. Obviously, the first person to two wins the golden joystick. Are our two competitors ready? Yep. 
then come out fighting. But while these two settle down, it's the last challenge and one more time. It's Tim Mills and Boone. I came up with that last week. He's going to be Tim Mills and Boone from now on for me. So Andy is playing as Raiden and Jim is going to be playing as Sub-Zero and both Dominic and Tim pick different people. Dominic has got Raiden because he's got the electricity moves, but Tim thinks that Sub-Zero is a real cool customer, so he's picking him to win. Yeah, he loves the Mr. Freeze type puns. I do think it was a shame that we didn't go with the absolute classic for this, where we've got two ninjas. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we having Sub-Zero versus Scorpion? Could that be the bloodlust thing? Because Raiden's electricity moves doesn't spark blood. Whereas Spear Chuck does. And I tell you what, these guys have both mastered one special move each. They've got the quarter circle punch. So we get ice blast, we get lightning. But you know what's even easier than either of those, Luke? It's the Spear Chuck. It's back twice mm -hmm. punch. Come here! And I think you, you kind of talk about how they've kind of, you know, got some of the the basics down on this game for my money jim is way better at this game than andy is but the first round is actually fairly even because they both land a flurry of moves raiden doesn't manage to land a lightning bolt in the first round and it looks like it's in the bag for sub-zero he lands a throw however raiden answers with a flying kick and boom round one to raiden crowd boos it because he bloody stole that it's something that occurs more with mortal kombat than street fighter is it is possible to completely switch a competition around with two moves. Mm -hmm. And also with Mortal Kombat, block is a button, not a direction. And anyone that's more used to Street Fighter, that will throw you off. Going into the second round, they're now both throwing out their special moves. So we're getting lots of the ice balls being thrown out and a lot of the electric shots from Raiden as well. Raiden even teleports at one point during this one, but Sub-Zero picks up the win. Yep, he learns how to spam the standing punches and it is boom, 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 down. I love that punch animation. It's so yeah. fun because no, no, it's no, no, also no, no. completely unrealistic. It looks more like handbag slapping. We're going into that final round. Bloody hell, Sub-Zero has got a point to prove here. Feeling like he probably should have won all three rounds. Dominates this one. Absolutely destroys poor Raiden in this final round. And for the first time on national television and to a broadcasting world, the words are uttered and we get an uppercut. But you know what? When you couldn't pull off a fatality... That was always the, it's as good as a fatality because those uppercuts always looked vicious. You got airtime. fly up into the air and everything, yeah. A geyser of blood. It looked great. Yeah, looked really, really cool. Now, Andy, you had a brilliant start. You were one boat up. Then what happened? I don't know. He just sort of iced me out, you know? I think we should do it for real next time. I think I'll get my lad. I don't think I want anything to do with that particular one. Um, what can I say, Jim? What was the secret of your success, do you think? Well, I have got 10 years' experience in martial arts over Andy, so I think that really helped me out today. So it was experience that won the day. As a Mortal Kombat fighting challenge, it kind of reminded me a lot of the Street Fighter 2 challenges that we've had throughout this. It's never been the best showing of what these games can be because they're not the world's best players at it like you would see now like you would never see this level of mortal Kombat playing done on sort of national tv they would be done by people who are complete pros at it and know what they're doing but i still get that massive kick out of seeing it particularly because of this time period and i kind of love how series two opens 
with Street Fighter 2 and closes with Mortal Kombat. I think there is something really, really telling of the time period that we're in. A real golden period for me. We've got Street Fighter 2 on the SNES. Mortal Kombat is in the arcades. It's about to be on the home consoles itself. This is a big, big time for fighting games. It is, and we haven't even started to get into the volley of SNK games. Soon we're going to get King of the Fighters. We're going to get more Fatal Furies. Mm -hmm. It's an exciting time to be a one-on-one fighting fan. And not only are we going to get some spectacular games over the coming years, we're going to get some stinkers. Rise of the oh, Robots. Here we are. I see you. It's, it's not too far off. No, there's Clay Fighter. Clay Fighter at least had the somewhat joy of stop motion animation. And blue suede goo. I love a good pun. That's nothing like one. <laughs> well, that's the dinner gong, which means it's supper time on the rig. Mandy Mauritius. <laughs> Sorry about that, I'm just hearing news that Auntie Marisha has in fact blown up a brand new pine fitted kitchen. It's a disaster of epic proportions. Hopefully we'll be back next week. In the meantime, if there are any of these pensioners on the rig, I'm getting off first. Good night. Well, for the final time, the dinner gong sounds, but uh-oh, everything is starting to fall apart because Auntie Marisha's going to blown up the new kitchen. And oddly, Dominic Diamond, despite the fact opening the show saying this the last episode, says... I'll see you next week. That one surprised me. Wasn't sure about that, but I did love how we got full-on evacuation, screaming kids, everyone doing their best Star Trek bridge under attack acting of... (laughs) Everyone go left. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that there must have been a director going (laughs) that way and that way. And we cut briefly to Games Master, who doesn't say anything, but he does look somewhat startled as various bits of his set start to fall off around him. And Dominic says, if there are any pensioners on board, I'm getting off first. He pushes past the diver and Benny Hill's out of there because this is sped up and it does get a little bit comical. So with the games rig sinking, that's it. Games Master Season 2 reaches a definitive conclusion with the fate of Games Master, the audience, the diver, and Dominic Diamond unknown for now. But there it is. That is the final episode of Series 2 in the books, Ash. We've now done 36 episodes of Games Master. Uh, What did you make of the final episode? As an episode, and acknowledging that we may be projecting current expectations of a season finale onto a show from 1993, I did feel it was somewhat of an anticlimax. Looking at it contextually, as I would in 1993, it's a great episode because of that last challenge because that was something shiny and new to end on it was something a bit dangerous channel 4 was the edgy channel and here was an edgy game on an edgy show it's got more edge than an entire u2 tour that's the level of edge we're talking about and so i find this very difficult to rank because in the grand scale of the entire season it is not one of the stronger episodes nope As a season finale, I have to ask myself, is it better than the season one finale? And I would say yes. I would say it's better than the season one finale because the show is more certain of its identity. It knows what Mm -hmm. it is. It knows where it's going. It knows its strengths and its weaknesses. And despite some challenges that aren't spectacular, it works around them. The first challenge, Shadow of the Beast. Not so great, but some fun interplay with the challenger. The whole thing about stealing the Mars bars and everything like that. That was pretty cool. The ice hockey stuff. The competitors, while I didn't really know who they were, were more entertaining than the game. The review section was fine. There was a few interesting games to certainly talk about. The consultation zone, also fine. Certainly a few interesting games to talk about. And Mortal Kombat, we skipped over because we've got an entire episode of it coming up. 
So looking back at episode 10 of season one, I gave that 89%. You gave it 92%. I certainly did. I can't go above 90 for this one because it's not a good episode. And if it was any other episode of season two, I'd probably be in the 70s, maybe 79, perhaps 80 at a push. However, taking the episode as a standalone, as the finale, and comparing it to the finale of season one, I believe it's a better episode. And I believe it has a stronger finish, both in the challenge and in the actual let's blow up the oil rig. So that's all a very long-winded way of saying (laughs) I'm giving this 90%. I am with you. I mean, you took the words pretty much out of my mouth, to be honest. I think this is a broadly fine episode. Anywhere else in the series, you wouldn't have really given it much of the time of day, but, you know, notwithstanding it being the final episode of series two. I think Shadow of the Beast is fine. The NHL game was fine. The review zone was fine. Consultation zone was fine. The double feature thing was fine. New Amiga games, a Michael Jordan press pack thing. But the episode for me is saved by that final challenge and seeing Mortal Kombat in the arcade and just this real sense of, and I kind of, as I said, you know, mirroring the opening of series two with Street Fighter 2 and ending it with Mortal Kombat just really kind of speaks to me. But I don't think I can go as high as 90. So I'm going to go mid 80s for this. I'm going to go for 85% for this final episode. And really, I think that is massively bumped out of the 70s by that Mortal Kombat challenge. Do you know what? That's absolutely fair. And I don't think I could present a convincing argument to persuade you to go higher. Nor would I want to. It's differences of opinion that help make this show what it is. I'm still comfortable sticking with 90%. One thing I will say about this episode in direct comparison to the finale of season one, all these games were pretty much new. In the case of Mortal Kombat, Bleeding Edge, whereas season one, Duck Hunt. Massively old. Emlyn Hughes International Soccer, not the oldest, but certainly not cutting edge. Decap Attack, which had been around a little while at that point. I was going to say, it was not new by the time it aired. So yeah, so no, 85 and 90. I think I'm fine with that. I think I'd have worried if we'd ended on a 70. Yeah, absolutely. But as I said, like I, I feel like perhaps this whole episode is a 70, with the exception of that final challenge, which really bumps it up. There was nothing in this episode that offended me. Absolutely not, no. Or left me feeling bored. Oh, the, the hockey challenge was a little bit because it wasn't, at least it, at least it was short, I suppose. It wasn't exciting, but it didn't drag. Yeah. There was enough back and forth to give the potential of goals, even if neither of them really capitalised on it. But anyway, that's it. Season two is in the books. That is it. We have finished series two of Games Master. Can you believe it? Uh, we're going to have our series two wrap up episode next week, which we're very much excited to record now. I'll feature all of your feedback as well. So do get that feedback in. This is your last call for feedback. Feedback at underconsultation.com. Get in touch with us on Twitter at underconsolepod and on Instagram at under.console. We want to hear from you. Send in your MP3, send in your reviews. Tell us what your favourite challenges were. What did you think of the final episode of Games Master? What are you looking forward to in Series 3? Because we've got that wrap-up review episode coming out in seven days' time. And then after a brief interlude, we're into the wild blue yonder of Season 3. The Games Master Academy. It's going to get weird, Luke. It's going to get very, very <laughs> weird. So yeah, those social channels again uh, is Twitter at underconsolepod and on Instagram at under.console. Ash, tell us about the Discord. Over on the Discord, we've got talk about the Crystal Maze because at time of recording, we've just dropped our bonus episode for Patreon backers on an episode of the Crystal Maze that aired only a couple of weeks after this episode of Games Master. Not only are people enjoying it, but we're apparently causing people's daughters to dance to the Crystal Maze theme tune. I really hope he switches it off before we start talking because, Luke, we've got potty mouths in that episode. (laughs) 
I did give a warning. I did say in the channel contains dirty words. So I think we're safe. I think we're fine. But no, there is discussion about the Crystal Maze. We talk about what we're playing. You can also offer direct feedback there to let us know what you think of the episodes or things that we cover on the episodes. Come along, drop in. If we're not awake, chances are someone else will be. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod. I realize we've been plugging our Crystal Maze episode, but by the time this episode actually comes out, we'll have had another bonus episode go up and we'll probably be getting ready to gearing up for our third bonus episode because this goes out towards the end of October. I'm excited to find out what we're going to talk about next because the best thing is while we come up with a shortlist, you are the people that decide what we talk about. And that is an open vote. You don't even have to be a Patreon backer to decide our fate. (laughs) You can vote for something you will never listen to. (laughs) What other podcast gives you that flexibility and you can get next week's episode one week early and ad free at the five pound level and at the ten pound level you get yourself a little bonus merch pack ash why don't you tell them what's involved with that in that merch pack you get sent a mug stickers badges pogs sweeties and a five pound discount on our first under consultation shirt which is available right now and if you want extra shirts or you want different mugs different stickers different badges you can get all of that in our merch store at under consultation dot com shout out to those 10 pound backers jamie matt kyrick phil simon nick sean adam cliff adam rich gordon william and misha thank you all so much you all rule as does each and every one of you who listens to this podcast please do give us a subscribe if you haven't already and leave a review for us to read and we will see you in seven days time for the series two wrap up which as the games rig is sinking into the sea i'm guessing we're gonna be doing from a life raft (laughs) well i suppose we'll find out next week take care everyone good night Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.